You're listening to the Irish Spark Podcast, where we aim to bring you a progressive worker's perspective through interviews, conversations and readings. Our guest today is John Hillary, the Head of Trade Policy for the Labour Party in Britain. With Brexit looming around the corner, we discuss the possibility of a hard border in Ireland. We apologise in advance for the sound quality for this recording. We spoke outside as it was a calm evening, however the microphone managed to pick up occasional gusts of wind. We will work hard in the future not to allow this to happen again. We hope you stick around and enjoy the show. Okay, how's it going, John? Would you like to introduce yourself, first of all? Thank you. Sure. My name's John Hillary. I come from London. Um, I've been working for the last couple of years as the head of trade policy for the Labour Party. I knew Jeremy Corbyn from many years back. I was previously the executive director of a, of a charity campaigning organisation called War on Want, which was very involved in international affairs. And obviously Jeremy Corbyn himself has long had this passion, this sort of drive for internationalism. So he's been involved in a lot of those international campaigns that I was involved in. When I was finishing my time in that job, he said, you know, we need to have someone who knows about international trade policy, which is my background. And so I've had this amazing two years working alongside Jeremy and the others in the Shadow Cabinet trying to develop a Labour Party policy on international trade. Okay. And you mentioned that you were previously a shop steward. That's right, yeah. No, I've been a shop steward within the Transport and General Workers Union, which is now, of course, part of Unite and therefore operates not just in Britain but also in the Republic of Ireland as well. And um, I had also previously been a, a paid staff worker briefly at the TGWU before that. But it was nice in my most previous job as being this director of a campaigns group. We worked very, very closely with the trade union movement. So actually it was as if we were almost like a sort of, not, not quite a think tank for the trade union movement, but we work very closely with a lot of the major trade unions on joint campaigns, perhaps producing the research which they could then use, working together with them to create international solidarity links with trade unions in other parts of the world. And so, for example, we work very closely with the, the garment workers in Bangladesh, the unions that they'd set up of young women, young men working in the garments sector, you know, these, these heavy, long, difficult jobs of, of, of 12 hours a day in incredibly taxing conditions. And yet at the end of that working day, they would still come into the trade union offices, meet for sessions, organise. I mean, it was so inspiring, yeah. you know, and you just thought, wow, what, what an incredible commitment from people who are right on the borderline of poverty, but they're still prepared to engage in that joint communal organising. It was really a profound experience to be part of that. I mean, you think back, it's 18th century conditions in England, and you wouldn't think nowadays that people would work in those conditions, but they most certainly do. I mean, the clothes we're wearing are made by those people. It's absolutely true. But, you know, it was in other countries as well. We, we had partners who were in Honduras, the women workers in those sort of industries there. And they were experiencing exactly the same sort of threats. And at the same time, a lot of, of, of horrible stories of, of you know, sexual violence, harassment, and the other things which they, not just being workers, but being women workers, had yes. to deal with. But by forming women-led trained unions and fighting against that and providing support and empowerment for each other, 
you could just see that transformation. They were no longer victims. They'd taken control, and they were able to, to really sort of craft a new agenda for the union movement mm. in those countries. So, you know, incredibly hard circumstances, but really inspiring stories brought about through trade union organising. Absolutely. I mean, you hear those stories, and you can't help but be inspired. Mm. So, uh, obviously, Brexit is looming across the next few couple of months, and everyone's talking about the hard border in Ireland here. Can you shed some light on that? Yes, definitely. I mean, the big problem is that if there is no deal, then it means there's no trade agreement between the EU and the UK. Mm-hmm. So it means under the World Trade Organization rules, you have to impose the same tariffs against each other as you would against another third country. So, for example... We have very, very high tariffs against meat, beef, lamb, which is produced in other countries, to protect the European market. If we come out without a deal in the UK, it means that both Ireland and the UK have to raise those tariffs against each other. There's no choice in that. The only way in which you can avoid having to raise tariffs is by having a trade deal. So if there's no deal... You have to raise the tariffs. And that's different from, like, the free movement of people. People can continue to move across the border. There's no rule that says you have to have a border for people at all. But you do have to have tariffs on goods. And that's the problem which is currently the number one thing everyone's grappling with. How can you have a situation where we don't see a return to a physical border on the island of Ireland and yet we can still put in place the tariffs and the new checks that are needed in order to have two separate customs jurisdictions. And I think that, you know, it, 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 it's the bit which they haven't managed to solve. The Labour position is that you can solve that, or you can go quite a long way towards solving it, by having a customs union, a new customs union between the EU and the UK, which means that we would continue to be part of the one customs territory. We would be outside the single market. We would be also outside the European Union rules, the payment, the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice. But we would still hold that same customs territory, which means that goods could pass from both sides of the border, from six counties to 26 counties, without ever having to have a physical border there. The other alternative, which of course the government has been trying to explore, and I think also the Irish government has been trying to explore, is whether or not it's practically possible to have the system in place which allows for tariffs to be charged on goods going across the border, but without there being actually a physical border. And to begin with, it seemed that people were confident that that would be the case, that it would be possible somehow to have an electronic system which meant you could already have done your customs declarations in advance and that you would then have spot checks occasionally um, from the point of view of, of, of what they call sanitary and phytosanitary standards, which is the health standards on um, uh, food. It seems that that still is possible, but there's big question marks all over it. And of course, the terrible thing is now that the clock is ticking Absolutely. Loudly <laughs> down yeah. towards the, uh, the, 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 the sell-by date, really. Yeah, I, I saw something there on the news about, 
I'm not sure if it is exactly, but there's 17,000 people going in and out every week or something like that. It's a crazy amount of yeah. traveling yeah. Uh, between the border. I mean, if you were to put a barrier on that, yeah. Uh, no, the impact right. is, is would be un- unthinkable, really. I think that's right. And I think that everybody agrees that, that, that we absolutely don't want that to happen. And, and there, there really is absolutely no call at all for there to be a physical border on the passage of people. So, uh, you know, people who are taking their kids across, in inverted commas, the border to school and then bringing them back across, in inverted commas, the border in the afternoon, that can continue with absolutely no worries Mm. because there's no international rules which prevent you being able to do that. The only thing that there is a rule on is that you have to charge import tax tariff on goods trade and that's the thing which people are trying to grapple with. We saw the popularity and the the growing strength of the Labour Party in the last number of years. Can you talk a little bit about Mm. why that has happened? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think what's been very clear is that people have been searching for a vehicle to express their discontent Mm -hmm. with the way in which certainly British society has been going for the last 20, 30 years, ever since Thatcher, ever since 1979 and that sort of end of the period in which the trade union movement was strong and people had rights at work. You've seen a downward slide in the level of wages within the national economy. And instead, more and more profits have gone to capital, to the big businesses. And and Britain is now in an extraordinary situation where we have one of the lowest levels of distribution in terms of, of, of national income every year between capital and labor. So people have been gradually squeezed out of the equation. And I think that there was a, a, a profound desire to see a politics which would allow for a change in that and Jeremy Corbyn in a way is a very unlikely hero because he wasn't really ever pushing for that type of position but he became the figurehead for something bigger and I think he, he, he readily expresses this himself he's not there as some sort of macho leader he is there as someone who embodies a political program which speaks to people's needs and desires and it was amazing after the Labour manifesto was created in 2017 for the general election just seeing the response from people to that type of program a program which spoke about people's rights it spoke about public services it spoke about rights at work it spoke about international peace and distribution it spoke a language which has been completely absent from the political debate in Britain for years and years and years and of course all the media pundits said nobody buys that agenda anymore but the minute it was put in front of them there was this profound response and people just went to it like you know with so much excitement so much fervor and that's continued even through all of the very the the, the really sort of underhand attacks on Jeremy from the establishment since so it's it, it was a very uplifting moment to see that in the general election, even though Labour didn't win, there was an enormous response, a positive response to the manifesto that was put before people. Yes. And uh, do you think that if Jeremy Corbyn hypothetically wasn't there, do you think that Labour would still have managed to get, a, get such a win? 
I think that if Labour had had the policies mm -hmm. which Jeremy has spearheaded, then the response would have been as good. But I think also, having said that, people also like the fact that Jeremy is not what they're used to in the very polished politicians who come forward with well-scripted answers. He comes forward as a genuine person and somebody who, during his political life, has espoused and supported a lot of causes which have not been easy. He's not, here, he's not had a, a simple ride through Parliament. He's gone looking for causes which have been difficult and also unpopular, and also things where he was never going to have any um, support from, from the constituencies. I, I actually went with him in 2014 as part of this very small delegation to the occupied zone of Western Sahara. Now, really, over here, nobody in Britain, or I don't know about Ireland, but certainly in Britain, nobody really knows about the situation in Western Sahara, a country which was occupied by Morocco in 1975. They're trying to get in, in, in Absolutely right. And, and they're the last colony, colony in Africa. Who knows about that? And there's no votes in it. But Jeremy Corbyn has always felt that that's the sort of thing which a parliamentarian should support. So we went together to the occupied zone. We were followed the whole way around by Moroccan secret police, you know, constantly harassed like that. But he saw that as part of his mission as a parliamentarian to stand up for people in that type of situation. That's the mark of somebody who's not in it for number one, who's not doing it because he sees it's going to rebound well towards him. It's a genuine desire to try to use his influence as a parliamentarian to help others. And I think people responded positively to that. We spoke at dinner about the, the rise of the, the far right, we had marches in Germany and Poland all yeah. across Europe. Where do you see that mm. coming to a head? It's, it's a really, really worrying trend of the last few years. And what we were thinking in our discussion just now is that, you know, by leaving a vacuum in the centre of politics, which used to be filled by the social democratic parties who said, you know, we are against the capitalist system, we are going to give marginalised, oppressed people, working class people a voice in this, by suddenly switching and saying we're actually part of the system, you leave that vacuum, and the vacuum will be filled by much more unpleasant, unsavoury groups. We can only pray that actually now there will be a reckoning whereby the left groups, the social democratic groups, reclaim that space. And I hope that when they look across at the British example and see a Labour Party which is revitalised, you know, by far the largest membership of any political party in Europe, revitalised precisely because it has reoccupied that political space which has otherwise been left to the far right, hopefully other left parties in Europe will be able to start speaking the language which people want to hear and instead of people going and supporting far-right groups, they will see that there is a vehicle of their own interest, their own protest, back in the left. But otherwise, it's a chilling prospect. When you see people like Marine Le Pen from what was the National Front um, in France on that openly racist platform getting to compete 
in the final round of the French presidential elections. I mean, it's a chilling prospect. And the crazy people in the Italian government. Absolutely. But which is weird, because the, the Italian government is precisely that sort of strange split at the moment between the Northern League, the very far right, and the Five Star Movement, which is much less clearly a right movement. It's much more of a populist response, again, to a, an Italian system where all of the left parties have just abandoned the people. So I think, again, it's, it's, a, it, it, it's a sort of European malaise, but in a way, Britain has shown through the Labour Party's revitalisation that there is an alternative. Here in Ireland, unfortunately, it's not like that. The working class don't really have anywhere to turn like they do with Jeremy Corbyn and Labour in England. And that's the fear among a lot of people where are they going to turn to mm. when the next economic downturn comes, mm. which might maybe in the next couple of years? But in a way, I mean, I think what where, where the Republic has been very inspiring to us is to see those popular movements for change. Mm. And, you know, whether it's been through the trade unions or whether through the right to water, you know, all of the other, the, 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 the powerful protests, which then led also to political platforms Absolutely. afterwards. You know, that even though they haven't got majority positions within the Doyle or anything like that, it's, it's, it's a, an inspiring idea that people power still has a very important role to play. And I think, again, it's about then forging those, you know, unities, those, those, those um, alliances between organised labour and the trade union movement, the protest movement, and then political parties, because that is how you turn a movement into a political force. And I think there's enough examples around the world of, of where you've seen that succeed to know that it still remains a very potent um, political force. Obviously, there are situations like in, in, in you know, the Irish Republic where perhaps the traditional vehicle for that in the Labour Party has lost a lot of its obvious appeal because of going into coalition government as a junior partner, which is always a really difficult situation. But, you know, can you rebuild? Can you reoccupy that space with a new political message and new political alliances? One can only hope so. And uh, just to finish off, anything else you'd like to add? Well, I must say it's been... I've, I've really enjoyed the discussions we've had today in terms of looking at the realities of life in Ireland, both north and south, coping with some of the problems that Brexit throws up, but also beginning to look at how you can conceive of a positive future, whatever happens in terms of the um, final deal. And I think that sense of a long-term perspective and being able to take the initiative and say, right, what's our agenda for the future? What's our agenda for this particular island as to how it goes forward, whether, whatever the dispensation is between North and South, what would we want to see in terms of the values, the principles and the policies in place which could create a whole behind which everybody could unite? And I think that type of much more optimistic, far-reaching, far-sighted political agenda is very exciting. So I think I've, I've left... You know, the beginning of, of, of today, I was a bit sort of confused as to whether or not it was going to be a, an uplifting day. Certainly by the end, I'm feeling really buoyant with some of the thoughts that have come up. Great stuff. Thanks very much for your time. Really, really good to speak to you. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks. 
Thank you for listening to the Irish Spark Podcast. If you like the show, please give us a review on iTunes or whatever platform you're listening from. It really helps us out and helps the show to reach more people. If you would like to get in touch, please send us an email at theirishspark at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Follow us on social media. We are on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. The details are in the description. We hope to see you again in a couple of weeks for our next episode. Take care.